to the Plugged In Podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome everybody to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm Alex Stevens, policy analyst here at IER. Um, I'm joined today by my colleague, Jordan McGillis, who uh, just earlier this week, we released a paper by him uh, called The Case Against a Carbon Tax. Jordan? Thanks for taking the time to talk today. Hello, listeners. This paper is kind of unique because a lot of climate and energy policy really puts the science at the forefront of the analysis. And this paper, which you've released, takes the IPCC sort of established science as a given and is only looking at factors um, concerning political economy and the economics of things here. So do you want to talk a little bit about why you made that decision? And Certainly. Um, so here's the way that I see this climate policy discussion typically unfold. Uh, there is a first a, a demand that you show quote unquote belief in the science. And then once you are pressured or cowed into quote unquote believing in the science, you're then expected to come to certain policy conclusions necessarily from that science that you have uh, now expressed your belief in. Um, I want to turn that on its head, and uh, our colleague Bob Murphy has done a lot of the legwork here as an economist um, in terms of evaluating, okay, even if we uh, take the mainline um climate case being made by uh, entities like the IPCC, is it necessarily the case that the optimal policy conclusions are the the things like carbon taxes or a Green New Deal um, that we're hearing proposed as the needed response? So again, there remains a lot of scientific discussion. That's a process that's always ongoing um, on what the effects of greenhouse gases are on the Earth's climate. That's an ongoing discussion that will never stop being discussed. There is no settled science end of discussion uh, point. So that continues. Now, while that discussion goes on and things like the equilibrium climate sensitivity are being um, debated within the scientific community, in the policy community, in the economics community, we can evaluate the different, uh, we'll call them pathways, in the climate science and, and assess, okay, what sort of policy conclusions um, should we then work toward and draw from these scientific claims? Uh, so yes, in the paper, we aren't making any claims about climate science. We're not saying that the IPCC is wrong in any way. We're not shilling for uh, scientists that have contrarian views. We're leaving those questions outside of the scope of this paper and instead we are assessing, okay, if we take the mainstream arguments, uh, do the policy um, arguments that are often used as the, as the uh, solution to this alleged problem follow? And I think what, what Bob has done a great job of, of showing in his work, and then what I tried to bring together here in one place, is that the mainstream scientific conclusions do not ipso facto lead to certain policy conclusions. I think this is something that you and I have discussed before. Um, the f 
just the nature of climate and energy discussions, because there's people who hold very passionate views on both sides of the, the, uh, the discussion, oftentimes you don't see people granting the other side their strongest argument and then working from there. Well, one thing that I think uh, advocates for economic freedom are often too quick to do is dismiss out of hand um, claims of harm from uh, various forms of pollution. And essentially the, the climate claim is that greenhouse gases constitute pollution because they're going to impose a cost on people at some point in time. Uh, so personally, I find that a very interesting topic to discuss. And I know you and I have had a lot of, um, a lot of fun discussions about how a society should deal with potential issues like that that arise. And there's been so much work over the, over the last century that's really fun to dig into and discuss these issues, often called externalities, uh, and how a free society should respond to them. Um, so one thing that you and I have um, talked about is whether greenhouse gases do constitute some sort of externality and, and how you would come to a conclusion that they do or do not. And do you want to talk a little bit about kind of your view on that philosophically um, and how you make those sorts of determinations when aiming to form policy? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very difficult because, in my opinion, costs are subjective. And if somebody is claiming that something is an externality, then I'm enough of a believer in subjectivism to say that it's probably an externality. Um, that's complicated, though, by the consideration of, okay, well, then what do we do about it? Because mm -hmm. we live in a world where we're surrounded by externalities. Exactly. So and the essence of the, of the Pigovian uh, framework on these sorts of pollution externality issues is that economists have the capacity to ascertain a some sort of cost and determine what that cost is, and then they want to implement that cost in, into the price system using the, the levers of the state. And we question that very endeavor itself. So right, our, yeah. our objection, well, I'll just speak for myself and then let you tell me whether you agree. My objection to... Uh, what's called the social cost of carbon is much more about the idea of social cost itself. Um, when you get into that game of ascribing a social cost to human activity, where does that end? There are countless instances of behaviors that through some economic model can be uh, demonstrated or at least claimed to, to impose a cost on other people. And we would be really upending human economic exchange as we know it if we begin implementing this Pigovian style tax on uh, energy activity, because that's just one of countless instances of things that could be viewed through the same lens. The way that the paper is, is broken down, uh, the first thing we talk about here is the what's called the social cost of carbon. And you and I have been discussing why that very endeavor is suspect. Uh, but yes, in the paper, once I try to instill to the reader that there are a lot of 
value judgments, a lot of normative perspectives that come into the formation of a social cost of carbon. Once I think that I've established that, I move on to, okay, well, let's just work within this framework for a while and let's see if uh, what the mainstream um, integrated assessment models, uh, which are how economists link the climate projections with economic projections, if we work within the mainstream there, do those lead to the conclusions um, and the implied uh, policies that we're seeing from groups like the IPCC? And the answer there is, is actually no. So even if we grant the mainstream within climate science and economics, the policies and um, what these models are saying don't exactly link up. So the, the big statement that came out last year from the IPCC was that governments across the globe need to implement policies to limit global warming to below 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming from pre-industrial levels. That is extremely unlikely uh, based on the trajectory that we're on right now. Uh, again, we're assuming the uh, mainstream take on climate sensitivity. And what that tells us is that we're going to, um, with business as usual, probably exceed exceed two, exceed three degrees of warming. So to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees of uh, warming Celsius would require enormous upheaval in our economic systems to really change our behaviors. And so... Um, just that perspective, it's important to point out, is also shared by William Nordhaus, right? That basically that target of one and a half degrees Celsius wouldn't be the optimal thing to target. Exactly. Um, so, and he discussed that in the Stern Review, right? So maybe well, you could talk a little bit about that. The, the Stern Review um, was, a, was a document produced by an agency in Britain, essentially, to, to advise the government on global warming about 10 years ago. Nordhaus, uh, and just about everyone else, had strong criticism of, uh, of the Stern Review because of the way it went about some of the normative aspects of forming the social cost of carbon. But the Stern Review can be viewed as a policy prescription for very intense economic restructuring. Um, and that's along the same lines. I think off the top of my head, I believe it would be slightly more lenient than would even the IPCC's recent suggestion of 1.5 degrees C. But again, the Stern Review came out a decade ago, so okay. things have changed since then um, in terms of the projections. So, But Nordhaus's position, to get back to him, and for listeners' sake, William Nordhaus is the leading um, integrated assessment modeler. Uh, his model is called DICE. And um, he is viewed as kind of the central figure in this whole realm of climate economics uh, and was a awarded the equivalent of the Nobel Prize recently. Um, his view, though, contrasts very sharply with the IPCC suggestion of 1.5 degrees of warming. Nordhaus's view is that uh, there is a carbon tax that would be optimal. And what he means by optimal is that in the long run, it would be the least costly path forward, uh, factoring in um, what in this field they call climate damages, and then also factoring in the economic costs of a carbon tax. So his view is that we should set a tax that would enable warming to climb well beyond the 
1.5 degrees and beyond 2 degrees. And I think his, um, his figure for where the optimal warming would be is around 3 degrees. And essentially what he's saying is, sure, global warming comes at a cost. However, completely stopping economic activity, while that would uh, stop the you know, emissions that are increasing the temperature, would be costlier. So in his view, there is an, there's a balance between economic intervention and warming. So he's saying, in essence, the 1.5 degree Celsius um, ceiling that the IPCC wants governments to help implement uh, would be costlier in terms of our well-being than would much more warming, but coupled with more economic growth. And you alluded to earlier that he arrives at that position through building these models, the IAMs. Um, a lot of your paper goes through the different parameters that um, go into the modeling. And we had, uh, I think our first or second podcast, we had uh, our colleague Robert Murphy on where we talked a lot about uh, the social cost of carbon, discount rate, time horizons, all of these factors. Um, do you want to just give a brief overview of the other parameters that are uh, yeah, involved so let's, in Yes, let's talk social cost of carbon briefly. Um, so when a carbon tax is proposed, uh, let's just say it's $20 per ton of carbon dioxide, the intention there is that that $20 uh, is equivalent to the social cost that that um, volume of emissions would cause. Now, the the reaching of those figures relies on, as I briefly alluded to, both the climate projections and then all sorts of economic models regarding future expectations of, of growth and you know various things like that. So it's extremely complicated. Here is here are the basics that a listener should be aware of. When the social cost of carbon is discussed, one factor that is contributing to it is something called a discount rate. Um, and a discount rate, to, to put this as simply as I can uh, without losing too much of the, of the nuance, is a weighing of future benefits and costs against current benefits and costs. So in public policy, the generally agreed upon uh, way of thinking about how costly a policy will be is looking to what it's expected to save in terms of um, you know, money in the future versus what it will cost in the present. And a generally agreed upon um, element of that is that the present is a little bit more important than the future. And that, that element of the social cost of carbon and the discount rate is called rate of time preference. Um, it sounds kind of funky until you realize that we all are doing that sort of thing every single day in all of our calculations. We are weighing future costs and benefits with present costs and benefits. And when we invest money, for example, we're looking for uh, a rate of return. Um, and that kind of indicates the sort of process that the government is trying to mimic when it uh, utilizes a, a discount rate and a social cost of carbon that, that results from it. So something that would save us $100 in the future, would it be the case that we should give up $100 today 
to get that in the future? And my view on that sort of question is that it is a primarily personal value assessment and that there's really not a role for, for government to be, uh, to be placing a view on that. Um, so what I think the answer to that question is differs from what you think the answer to that question is, and, and our conditions differ. And it's difficult to say if there's a, a certain way we should make that calculation. So doesn't climate change, though, present a unique problem where if we're all just factoring in, well, do I want to satisfy the things that I want to accomplish now and not paying attention to the future? Isn't that really the whole crux of the debate is that collectively we're not doing that? That's a big element of it. And it does create somewhat of a conundrum. Uh, so the the cost that we're potentially facing with climate change, to be more specific, what what the way I think of it, uh, the most concrete, I think, is rising sea levels. So if we just accept the mainstream argument on, on sea level rise, we are going to see that um, increasingly into the 21st century. Um, so given that we are not experiencing a cost immediately, uh, the advocates for climate action are essentially saying we need to take into account the future just as much as the present. And the way that's reflected in the discount rate is with a very low discount rate. Effectively, you're saying the future is uh, just as important as the present, and, and they account for slightly more than this consideration. This is, again, time preference. Um, and there's more, a little bit more that goes into the discount rate than just that. But the core is the time preference. And many people, including many libertarians, Tyler Cowen uh, is one that advocates for essentially a rate of time preference of zero, meaning that we, in our public policy formation, allot just as much significance to issues that might arise in the future uh, as we do today. Um, and that leads to that leads me to another element beyond the discount rate, which is the time horizon. And I think this is where it really gets murky. These climate models uh, and the IAMs, the IAMs, run for centuries. We're talking 100, 200, 300 years. And if you're operating at a near zero discount rate, you're saying that the the rate of time preference is zero, and we should. Uh, a lot just as much moral significance to events in the year 2300 as events in the year 2030, you could potentially come up with some very um, peculiar policy conclusions. Uh, Nordhaus brings up an example of, let's say some sort of climate wrinkle were discovered, and we found out that um, in the year 2200, there would be a, a sudden tipping point and um, you know, the world economy would come to a halt. Uh, would that imply that we should today, you know, almost 200 years uh, before the point in time which that wrinkle would begin to manifest itself, should we pay a cost now? And uh, he goes through a pretty convincing example um, and shows that it doesn't make a lot of sense to factor in the, the deep future, or the, I'm not sure that would be considered deep future, but a couple centuries into the future, um, it doesn't make a lot of sense on its face to fact, to give that just as much weight as tomorrow. Um, and I think that that makes sense. But again, I think that it's a personal, it's a personal valuation issue. So you can 
begin to see how it's a bit unconvincing when you look deep into the future. When we're thinking of the year 2050, the year 2060, you and I will be alive at that point in time. And if we know we're going to face costs, that is something that, that we would reasonably be thinking about today. But when we're talking centuries into the future and the policy implications are really serious, as you know, certain climate models say they will be, you begin to see why the rate of time preference of, of zero and a near zero discount rate, the results, um, potentially would lead us to far too costly policies in the present. Yeah, just to, I mean, just to pump the intuition on the, uh, the idea of trying to factor out costs centuries in the future, it's like somebody living in the 1800s trying to imagine a world that we live in today and thinking through the implications of their actions back then and the implications that it has, it, it would have now. It, to mm-hmm. me, just like on the face of it, that seems ridiculous, but it, it doesn't seem possible. I uh, agree. Uh, and my, my overriding view on this is that you must bring in your own normative perspective when you're evaluating these questions. And the way that the so-called social cost of carbon is presented publicly is as if it's something that we are deriving through a scientific and objective process that is empirically based and, uh, and unquestionable. And that simply isn't the case. The formation of the social cost of carbon on which a carbon tax would be based requires a normative view. And I think that's what this discussion shows. There are some thorny questions that come up when we're thinking about the future, um, both our own lives and other human beings' lives, and that normative element should, at the very least, be publicly acknowledged. And it often isn't. It's the social cost of carbon is presented as if this is what the scientists have found, and so we must act in accordance with it. And that isn't the case. So I could see somebody pushing back on that and saying, well, that's what democracy and the policymaking process is, is that we're going to have normative assumptions in, uh, in the policies that we adopt. We, the way that we go about arriving at those normative positions is by discussing, debating that. So how, how would you respond to that? My response isn't all that complicated to that sort of point, I completely agree that public discourse on these things is important, and that's what we're trying to further here at IAR and give our perspective on this. Uh, and our pers- our perspective is that the mainstream um, discussion of carbon taxes and of climate policy generally doesn't al- doesn't show the public how many considerations are going into the sorts of policy prescriptions that are are being uh, put forth. So IER is just one of many entities in this political discourse ecosystem. Um, And I speak for myself when I say this, uh, not not the institute, but we play a role in that. Other organizations that are pro-carbon tax play a role in that. Um, So the more we discuss these things, the better. And we're just trying, we're trying to bring Um, or shed more light on what the social cost of carbon entails. And it entails a lot of things that uh, the average person who doesn't spend their time thinking about these issues wouldn't have considered before. They, someone would be likely to assume that 
the social cost of carbon is just as objective as something like the mass of Jupiter is the example we used in this paper. Uh, really, really smart scientists are able to calculate these things, and we should trust that. And that's kind of why at the beginning I alluded to the idea of belief in science. I think that we should all invest as much time as we have to uh, understanding the things that we're talking about. And I don't think most people who bandy about the social cost of carbon really do understand. They are putting a blind belief into what they're being uh, what they're being told. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, you're right. People talk about the social cost of carbon as if it's an objectively fixed thing that we can just go out there and calculate, but it's not. Um, mm-hmm. I I said just a moment ago that we should all be conscientious to not go beyond the state of our knowledge and. Um, that's a difficult thing to do because you get attention by making bold claims. Uh, so I think that there's there are strong incentives for think tanks and for political commentators more broadly um, to to make uh, very strong stands on things. And some would say that that we do that, and some would say that that I'm doing that um, with this paper. So there is, you know, you do have to take some. You need to go to the border of your knowledge, but doing it in a way that is um, true to the work you've put in to understand these things, uh, and and do it in a, in a in a way that reflects integrity, where you're you're not overstating your understanding of things. So I'm trying to do that myself, and I, mean, uh, I leave open that some people might criticize it. Yeah, just the fact that you would bring that up, I don't think there's very many people that would do that. So it's let's shift focus uh, from this discussion about the parameters and things and the social costs and talk about some of the other things in the paper. One of the things that you point out is that there's some empirical evidence that a carbon tax would have some pretty bad uh, impacts on economic growth because of the nature of, uh, of carbon taxes and the way that they interact with other existing policies. So could you talk a little bit about the tax interaction effect, maybe the complexity of a carbon tax on top of our all uh, already existing tax structure? Why don't we talk Capital Alpha study first? Okay. Uh, so the Capital Alpha Partners um, paper that came out in the fall was commissioned by IER, uh, and we wanted to get an econometric analysis of what the effect of, of various carbon taxes would be. Uh, and in that paper, special attention was paid to um, what's called the lump sum rebate uh, revenue recycling strategy. And, and that's the strategy that a group called the Climate Leadership Council advocates. And what a, what a lump sum uh, revenue recycling strategy means is that the revenue collected from a carbon tax would then be divvied out to members of the American public, essentially just in lump sum checks. Uh, and that could be monthly, it could be twice annually, maybe it's just some sort of uh, tax return thing, a lot of ways you could do it. Um, but what the study found is that of all the, the various things you could do with carbon tax revenue, that would be the one that would be most harmful uh, in terms of economic continued economic growth. Why um, is that? 
let's talk about what the alternatives are okay. and then, you know, kind of compare. So, um, again, one of the things we're doing with this, with the, the current paper, the uh, case against a carbon tax is um, we wanted to step inside of the, the carbon tax framework and just discuss it uh, on its own terms. So that's what this paper, this prior paper uh, did as well. And the various revenue recycling strategies that were analyzed um, included corporate tax reductions, uh, personal tax reductions, infrastructure spending, um, the lump sum rebate. Uh, and so of those various things you can do with carbon tax revenue, um, what the paper found is that, and what is generally generally found, I mean, it wasn't just this paper, many uh, economic studies have come to the same conclusion that if we were to implement a carbon tax, in order for it to be a pro-growth, meaning um, it's adding to our already expected continued growth, the only way for that to really happen would be if almost all or 100% of the revenue were allocated to corporate tax reductions. Um, and I think you you might have a stronger explanation for why that sort of approach uh, is better. But I mean, the the obvious um, the obvious answer is that it enables more investment and um, more productivity going forward, as opposed to the lump sum rebate, which is really a more consumption based and it's a it's a transfer of wealth. Uh, in which we are collecting revenue and then um, giving it out just on an on an equal basis. So let's say that you and I are the only two citizens in the country. I spend a uh, hundred dollars on the carbon tax. You spend ten dollars on the carbon tax. That's a hundred and ten dollars total. We each get a fifty-five dollar check. So basically, my uh, the money that was taxed from me will be divvied out to you. Um, so, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? And can you give us more perspective on why uh, the corporate tax reduction is leaving aside, you know, carbon taxes? Why are corporate tax reductions beneficial for an economy generally? Yeah, well, I, I think you're right. Uh, the impact that that would have is probably more investment, more growth. Um, my personal concern comparing those two options would be that the lump sum rebate would probably present more opportunities for political exchange. So you wouldn't get the, you're less likely to get the optimal policy that you're sort of outlining there. So, um, can you explain that a little bit further? You've, you've put a lot of thought into that side of it. Um, the, which is, you know, that the kind of public choice perspective that you bring to this discussion, uh, can you tell us more about the po how the political process plays into it? Yeah, it, I mean, it's a broader problem with carbon taxes is that people people tend to formulate it as though, okay, we're going to establish the social cost of carbon and then we're going to design a policy that's set at that and um, we're going to reduce regulations or reduce other taxes and things. And um, that's something that you can dream up in a classroom or, you know, in a think tank or something. Real world policy isn't made that way. The way that I tend to think about how policies are enacted is pretty similar to the way that people think about um, processes in the market. So there's people who are self-interested, who 
are alert to opportunities to change policy in ways that are going to benefit them. They generally act on that. Um, and different coalitions will recognize these things. And the way that a policy idea tends to work its way then through a legislature is, isn't, oh, here's the best idea. Let's all vote on it. It's how can we pass this policy and also appease all these different interest groups who um, have a stake in it? So you mentioned briefly the the tax interaction effect. I won't go too much into that, but essentially this idea, um, which two economists, uh, Bavenberg and, and Goulder, came up with in the, in the late 1990s, the idea um, which undermines some of the pro-carbon tax claims um, is that because a carbon tax is an excise tax, meaning it's a tax on a particular set of economic activities, um, and it has a, though a, though it does have a wide base, it's a narrower base than some other forms of taxes, mainly taxes on income, you know, like corporate taxes and, and personal taxes. Um, so because it has that narrower base, it could be a more distorting tax um, than those other taxes that are already in place. We're often sold the, the compromise of a tax reduction elsewhere in exchange for a carbon tax. And what this work suggested is that it may not be um, a good idea purely in terms of causing more distortion and more deadweight loss for, for the economy. So that's, that's the tax interaction effect. And is that, is, is that because like broader taxes, you can set them at a lower percent? Precisely. So okay. the broader the tax, the, the lower the rate can be to uh, generate the same level of revenue. And as this theory goes, you're going to have uh, smoother economic processes as, as a result of that lower tax rate with the, with the broader tax base. Um, so that's just one, one additional theoretical point against the carbon tax. So we've talked about a lot of these different economic elements of the carbon tax. We've talked a lot about our perspective on the social cost of carbon. Let's get to an example of a carbon tax that has been implemented. And uh, the one that I think is the, the obvious example for Americans to look at is the Australian carbon tax. Um, and the reason why I think that that one makes sense to look at is because it was a tax on an entire country and one that's quite similar to the U.S. Yes, it's much smaller in population, but uh, it is an, an energy-intensive economy, um, an energy-producing economy, and, um, and it's a very vast country that has some similar characteristics to the U.S. Uh, so they implemented a tax. They, they voted on that in 2000. 11. It was it was part of their Clean Energy Act 2011, uh, and it did not last long. The tax was repealed just two years later, and um, the reason is just people did not could not stand uh, the price increases that they saw as a result. Um, there were 15 percent hikes in electricity prices during one of the of the periods under review during that brief two year span. The carbon tax was uh, was implemented in in Australia, and during that period, according to work by Australian economist economist Alex Robson, the percentage of the overall cost 
um, that Australians were paying for energy that was attributable to the tax and to other energy policies was 19%. So almost a fifth of what they were paying for their energy uh, was going to either the tax or to or was a result of other regulations. So this was a very costly policy that that hit people um, in a meaningful and, and noticeable way. And and one thing that we've seen recently with these yellow vest protests, uh, leaving aside some of the political baggage that has been attached to them and as as they've metastasized, um, people hate energy taxes. What you're describing here is I think another problem with people who are promoting carbon taxes, because if you implement a carbon tax and the people living under that tax, if their expectations aren't aligned with sort of the process of what a carbon tax is supposed to do, you're raising the price, which is supposed to spur innovation or change people's behavior and stuff. To them, they're just seeing rising energy prices. I personally don't think that you can blame people for not having a super sophisticated understanding of maybe like welfare economics and uh, uh, to the average person you just see energy prices rising and the political ramifications of that, I think it presents a problem for carbon tax proponents because you can't you know to you can't uh, allow yourself to, to just say, okay, we have the carbon tax in place, everyone's going to accept it and we've solved the problem. It, and to to tie this back to an earlier thread in the conversation, that's precisely why the lump sum rebate uh, recite revenue recycling strategy has a lot of political cachet because it's seen as a way um, to get buy-in from people. It's obviously the, the case. I mean, it's the entire purpose of a carbon tax is to increase the price of energy so that we behave differently. Uh, but... Advocates for the carbon tax realize that that is not going to sit well with people who would prefer to pay lower prices. Uh, And so what they say is, yes, your prices are going to be higher, but you're going to be made whole through this rebate check that you're going to get. And that that is what the the mindset is uh, right now within... Um, I would say the the bulk of the carbon tax camp is that the way to get the carbon tax enacted is by mollifying people's concerns about increasing prices through the lump sum rebate check. Now, again, our uh, commission paper, the um, Capital Alpha study, suggests that that's precisely the wrong way to go about recycling the strategy or recycling the revenue if you want to ensure maximal economic growth in the long term. So essentially, carbon tax advocates are saying, we know a carbon tax is going to hit people hard, uh, and we would rather get it passed and sacrifice macroeconomic performance by dishing out these, these lump sum rebates. Yeah, but I mean, I still think even there, you, you're you asking people to tie the changes of, in prices that they see in the world then to something that they're going to see on their, maybe their tax mm-hmm. rebate okay. form right. or so something. So and, you... and I think this is important because I don't want it, I don't want people to think that what I'm saying is, well, you know, the public's stupid and they can't, you know, piece together 
uh, the way that pol policies are impacting their lives. That's not what I'm saying at all. I, I, I believe that people have a lot of other concerns in their lives that take precedent over what's happening here in Washington. So everyone's certainly capable of piecing that together. It's just a question of, is it worth the time to invest in understanding this complex policy issue? And that's where I'm skeptical, e even, even, in the, um, even with plans that are considering a rebate. So, mm -hmm. With that in mind, it's interesting to observe the, the strategies that are used by carbon tax advocates generally. And one thing that they that they a phrase that they like to use is making polluters pay uh, which seems to be appealing to it seems to appeal to a sense of fairness that people generally have and one of our missions at at IER is to make it clear to people that when when they say making polluters pay that means making us all pay because we all are relying upon this incredible integrated energy system um, that we have in in the U.S. and, and across the globe now. Uh, and so a carbon tax is going to affect all of us in the prices of just about, about everything. The more we make that clear and the more we have these discussions uh, and we connect the prices that people are seeing with policies, I think the more successful we will be at, at uh, warding these things off. I want to I want to hit maybe a couple of the other case studies because I think that using tangible examples like that it's it makes it easier to see that see the sort of problems that we're pointing out theoretically you see then how those problems play out in the real world so like you you talked about Australia uh, British Columbia I know that that started as sort of the ideal thing wasn't it it was originally a revenue neutral carbon tax. Right. The British Columbia example is often cited as the, the paragon of a carbon tax. Uh, it's looked upon very, very favorably by carbon tax advocates in the United States. Um, that, and the, the BC tax is just in that province. Uh, I believe it was implemented in um, 2008. Um, and now, now Canada um, has a, a, a much more comprehensive carbon tax plan uh, that is being thrust upon the provinces by um, by Ottawa. But BC has had theirs again for about 10 years. Um, yeah, upon implementation, one of the selling points of this BC carbon tax was that it would be revenue neutral, uh, which is a term used, it's used in a few different ways. Uh, one of which though is that the revenue won't be used for um, new spending uh, or other other government programs. Um, and BC's tax was explicitly based on that premise. Uh, but over the course of time, it's gone back on that on that promise to the people. And now they are using um, the tax revenue for other government programs. programs. So, it's just one of many data points that reflects what you're talking about regarding political compromise um, and pol the political process being open-ended. We don't know, uh, we shouldn't think with certainty that a policy reach will remain in place 
things are constantly changing. And um, the promised revenue neutral carbon tax that we hear about in the US or the regulation tax swap that we hear about is subject to a lot of political pressures that will um, that will tend to uh, result in a tax that is not the even so-called optimal or textbook tax. Yeah, I think we've covered just about everything in the paper. There might be a few things that we left out, but uh, before we go, I think one of the challenges then that's put to us is that, you know, if you're not going to do a carbon tax, then, you know, what, what do we do about climate change? And mm-hmm. uh, I guess the question I put to you is that, is it the case that if, you know, there isn't a government policy that's incentivizing people in a certain way or trying to change their behavior in a certain way? Is it the case that we're not doing anything about climate change? I want to refer back to a point you made earlier, Alex, which was that we want people to be free to pursue their ends. Uh, and that's, that is an overriding motivation of, of my work in the policy world is trying to um, dissuade people from uh, it, policies of intervention um, that encumber people's decision-making. And instead, I want to facilitate policies that are going to enable people to make the best decisions for themselves long-term. And we have to keep in mind that that's something that is constantly ongoing. We are each, um, as individuals and as um, you know, economic uh, communities, always acting upon the basis of the best information that we have. So it isn't the case that we are, uh, even again, if we accept the mainstream conclusions from within climate science, we are not careening toward some sort of existential crisis. It's sometimes put that climate change is an existential threat. I think that that is an outrageous thing to say, given the ingenuity and progress that humans are constantly demonstrating. We have this information about potential uh, challenges we, we face in the future, and we're acting upon that. One, one very um, clear case uh, where this is occurring is coastal property owners who now, are, now have this knowledge that they're probably going to see um, their property uh, be faced by um, higher tides, uh, stronger storm surge during um, tropical storms and things of that nature. They have that information um, and are able to do a number of things, all sorts of things you can do in the context of that knowledge. You can invest in your own property and in terms of uh, strengthening it, strengthening your foundation in terms of you know lifting a home to, to higher ground. And then there's also just market prices where people are able to uh, express their own risk risk preference and risk tolerance. So I, um, if I have a, a very low tolerance for risk, I'm able to you know sell my property to someone else who has a higher risk tolerance and is, is willing to pay me in exchange for taking on that um, the responsibility for that property. So these things are ongoing, and uh, what I think our public policy should be geared toward. Um, encouraging is that people have the freedom and have the certainty to to act upon those things without um, encumbrance by uh, state-centric plans. Thanks for uh, joining me today, Jordan. Uh, your paper is called The Case Against the Carbon Tax. It's available on our website, instituteforenergyresearch.org.